0: Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 12. This is the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come... Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Please pray with me, our father. we're so grateful to come to your word this morning, and we come to an incredibly powerful passage. I just pray by the mercy, by your mercy and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would understand what's, what was written here for us, and that we would be transformed for the glory of Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. please be seated. <clears throat> One of the most anticipated events of my childhood was the first time I got to fly on an airplane. It was a very short flight from Sioux Falls to Minneapolis on Western Airlines, which doesn't exist anymore. But I I was enamored with airplanes. My uncle was a Navy pilot in Vietnam and then a commercial pilot. And that's what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I was really looking forward to this experience. Well, as we boarded the plane... I was just a young child, and I, as we took that right turn to our seats, I was able to peek back into the cockpit with all the dials and controls, and I remember walking past these relatively wide seats that these men in suits were sitting in, reading their newspapers and being waited on by the, the flight attendant, and then when we sat down, I realized that first area that we walked past must be special because eventually they closed the curtain between where we were sitting and that special area with the the guys in suits, apparently we were not even allowed to see what was happening in there. Well, then later, I think this might have been on a a different flight, but I heard that some other kid got to go through that special area behind the curtain all the way to the cockpit. What must that be like up there with the pilot, the nerve center of the airplane? So while I was thankful to be on the plane at all, There were those even more fortunate than me who were allowed to be in that special section behind the curtain with the wide seats. And then most fortunate of all was this kid that got to go past that area all the way into the cockpit. I could only guess what that must be like. In some ways, this is similar to what the Israelites experienced in the era of the First Covenant tabernacle. God had to find sacred spaces and divisions of all those spaces. And the closer you got to the mercy seat, the nerve center, if you will, the more restricted the access. The average Israelite could only guess what that access must be like. To be in the tabernacle complex at all, you needed to be a Jew. To be in that holy place, you needed to be a priest, And to be in the most holy place, you needed to be the high priest on the day of atonement. And the Lord was teaching them something very important in that structure about his holiness and restricted access to his presence because of their sin. And with the arrival of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection in the new covenant, something very significant has changed. And that change is exactly what we're going to be considering this morning. I invite you to follow along in the sermon outline in your bulletin. First, let's consider this earthly tabernacle of the first covenant. The the, the author gives us the overview. Let's start reading together in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section The mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, the writer says explicitly he doesn't want to spend time in detail on this first covenant structure. So I certainly don't want to spend undue time on these details either. However, because the original audience already knew these things, it wasn't necessary. And that's not the case with most of us. So I want to spend a little time explaining what all this is. And I have a slide, if we could have it behind me on the screen, that will help us visualize this. The first thing that might seem strange is he speaks of the tabernacle or the tent and not the temple, which had, been, had replaced the tabernacle in this system. And one reason is that some of these elements are no longer present at this time in history. So the author goes back to the original instructions for the tabernacle. And consider this. There are roughly 50 chapters of our Old Testament, covering all the instructions regarding the tabernacle. So central to the first covenant law and God's relationship with Israel. They needed to adhere closely to these regulations in order to worship. And it's all about sacred space. God, again, is teaching them about His unapproachable holiness, His desire to dwell among them, but the problem of their sin and its impact On their relationship with Him and their proper worship of Him. So, the author describes here two separate sections of the tabernacle. The first section is called the holy place. The priests from the tribe of Levi entered this space to keep the lamps burning on the lampstand, trimming the wicks and adding the oil for the lamps to burn. The the lamps obviously provided light throughout the holy place. The priests would eat of the bread of the presence and replace it with new loaves. The bread was, of course, sustenance, life for Israel. So the Lord is their light and their life. But there was also a second curtain, and they were not allowed to go in there. This area was called the Most Holy Place, or the Holy of Holies. Once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in there. The Ark of the Covenant was in there, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he also says the altar of incense was in this second section. But actually, it was right outside the curtain in the first section, and everyone knew that. So he probably includes it talking about the second section because of its function on the Day of Atonement, which is the main thing we're going to see that he talks about next. So, this Ark of the Covenant, back in the day, this was a box covered in gold with some interesting contents. There was a golden urn with manna. This was the food, remember, the Lord had miraculously provided each day to sustain them in the wilderness. Aaron's staff that had budded when the Lord chose Aaron, Moses' brother, for the priesthood back in Exodus. At one point, his staff budded and blossomed with almonds. Neither the staff nor the manna were placed in the ark originally, but apparently in time they were. And then the tablets of the covenant. These are the Ten Commandments. By the time the temple was built, this was the only thing left in the ark. Gundry notes something interesting here about the contents inside the ark. Each item in the box evoked memories of sin. Moses breaking the pair of stone tablets in rage as the people were worshiping the golden calf. God gave manna to the grumbling Israelites who wanted to go back to Egypt. Aaron's staff budded as a sign of God's favor when Korah and others rebelled against God's order. So all these items are sort of mementos of sin and the inability of the first covenant to do away with sin. The writer ends this overview by mentioning the cherubim, golden angels of glory that overshadowed the mercy seat, which was the top of the ark, where the Lord's mercy happened, if you will. Sort of the focal point of atonement and God's presence, as we'll see in the next point. But all this gold, incense, the double barrier of separation, the angels with their wings covering the mercy seat, as Hughes writes, everything says glory. Okay? As, it's amazing, really, that there is a way to worship this glorious God, despite... Sin and separation. So the author says, he's not going to speak about these things in detail because his main point, as we saw last week, is the greatness of Jesus' high priesthood. His point here is that the first covenant and its limitations foreshadowed what would be so great and different about the new covenant. So let's look now at the limitations of this earthly tabernacle And the first covenant. Let's start reading in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, As long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Let's stop there. First, I want to clarify something in verse 7. It says, The high priest offers the sacrifice for his own sins and the unintentional sins of the people. What does he mean by that? In the Day of Atonement, instructions back in Leviticus 16, there was no distinction between intentional and unintentional sins. It just says all their iniquities. However, in other places in Leviticus and elsewhere, you read, don't you, at times when, when people do certain things, they're cut off from God's people. What is called... Sinning with a high hand, sort of in your face to God and his promises. This is where you deliberately turn your back on the covenant. There's no hope for that person. I think the author of Hebrews is drawing the connection from that in this letter with apostasy. We we saw this in chapter 6. We'll see it again other places. If you ultimately reject the means of God's grace and the covenant and are unrepentant, there's no hope for you. So, back to the limitations. What are they? The author highlights two of them. First, there are barricades separating the worshiper from God. Second, the sacrifices are not ultimately effective to inwardly cleanse the worshiper. So let's consider these two limitations of the old system one by one. First, the, the barricades between the worshiper and God. Only the priests of Levi regularly go into the first section, he says. This is the daily activity we talked about earlier. Tending the lamps, the bread, the daily offerings. The second section was only entered once a year, and only by the high priest that year. Again, this is the day of atonement. Moses was told that if the high priest went in there, any other day of the year, he would die. And when he did go in, when he was supposed to, on the Day of Atonement, he took blood. Now, when you see blood in Hebrews, and really, I think, generally, anywhere in the Bible, blood means death. There's nothing magical or special about the chemical composition of blood. Okay? The shedding of blood is a way of speaking of death. They would say the life is in the blood. So whether you're talking about the blood of animals, as in this case in the old system, or the blood of Christ in the New Covenant, it means their death. The high priest took blood from the animal's death into the most holy place and put it on the mercy seat. This was for atonement, a covering for sin, a payment or ransom for sinners. This was for himself, it says, because the high priest was a sinner too, and for the rest of God's people. But he, the high priest, was the only one that went in. So there are multiple barricades of separation between an Israelite worshiper and God. That's one limitation. The second limitation of the old system has to do with the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices to internally change or cleanse the worshiper. The author says at the end of verse 9, these sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So, while the previous sin was covered... There was no internal change. And immediately after the Day of Atonement was completed, there's more sin beginning to accumulate. The sacrifices are repeated the next year, year after year. Furthermore, everything was external. External washings, external regulations for the body, but not internal renewal. Now, the author says that these limitations in them, the Holy Spirit was indicating something. Something that's symbolic for today. Today is the new age. He calls it the time of reformation. Some translations say the new order. Or the time of correction. Making something better that was insufficient before. In the old system, these barriers were reminding the people that God is inaccessible. The the way is not yet opened. Apart from the high priest, no one could go directly to the throne of mercy. Verse 9, the first section is symbolic for the present age. His readers were in danger of missing this point, the old age and the new age, the time of reformation. These sacrifices were ordained by God for a season, okay? a particular period in salvation history. You can't go back to that period. That period has now expired. It was never meant to be permanent. It was pointing forward to this. There was also a built-in reminder every time they did it that the blood of the animals is not ultimately effective. So no one could have a clear conscience because they haven't been changed within. Ellingsworth says this about the Day of Atonement. I'm paraphrasing. The greatest festival of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement, ironically shows most clearly the limitations of the old system and its high priesthood. So the barricades show the way to God's presence is not yet open. The veil is a symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful people. The Day of Atonement pointed forward to one day when access would be open. As long as that first section is still there, it's, it's not open. Now, all of that has changed. Let's look now at the heavenly tabernacle. Start reading in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing The new age, the, the, time, the, the new order has come in Jesus Christ. The time of reformation, the time to correct the insufficiency of the old system, that time has come. Jesus has overcome both of these limitations of the first covenant. First, no more separation between God and the worshiper. In that amazing story in Matthew 27, we read about the incredible visual picture of what happened by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. That curtain in the Jerusalem temple between the holy place and the most holy place, that barrier that kept everyone else away, that curtain was torn, wasn't it? From top to bottom in a magnificent display. Jesus broke down the barrier between the worshiper and God. F.F. Bruce says this, when on the cross he offered up his life to God as a sacrifice for his people's sin, he, that is Jesus, accomplished in reality what the high priest performed in type by the twofold act of slaying the victim and presenting its blood on the Holy of Holies. In Ephesians 1, we see that worship is no longer in a place, but in a person. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, making known to us the mystery of his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The fullness of time has come. The mystery is revealed. Through Jesus, anyone, Jew or Gentile can directly approach God to worship in Him. Secondly, Christ overcomes the limitation of the internal cleansing of the believer. It says He entered the Holy of Holies. Now, there isn't technically a tabernacle in the heavenly realm. This is an image, as Schreiner says, this image is a vehicle for describing the indescribable. Bringing us into the holy place is bringing us into the presence of God. This is what Jesus does for believers. And what he does is inward and impermanent. In the first covenant, they used ashes to remove impurity, uncleanness, external symbolic removal of defilement. That doesn't cleanse the conscience. Nothing actually changes the inner person. The old covenant laws were written on stone. Hands, foreheads, door frames, impressed on children to influence minds and hearts. But now the new covenant is written on the heart. By the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we now have, we are internally uh, cleansed. We have an inward ability to now live out his will. Now, of course, we still struggle. But now his commands are consistent with who we are internally in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are internally renewed. In the old system, the animals that were sacrificed had to be outwardly, physically unblemished, remember, because they provided an outward cleansing. Jesus is inwardly, morally unblemished because he provided an inward cleansing. And there's no need to repeat his sacrifice, because as Jeremiah prophesied, this new covenant, with the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant, he will remember their sins no more. He has secured an eternal redemption. Spurgeon says this, Eternal punishment is a word of unspeakable terror, but it is met and fully covered by eternal Redemption. We need not be afraid if we put our trust in the Lord Jesus as our sacrifice and priest. Nothing in the mystery of eternity need frighten us. How shall we be lost for whom an eternal ransom has been paid? And what are we cleansed from? Verse 14 dead works, worthless and unproductive. In the old system, we couldn't be who we were meant to be. Now we can. Note the purpose in verse 14. So that we can serve the living God. We were created, designed to worship Him. We were made and meant to serve God. That's who we were designed to be. Listen to Spurgeon again. For this end we were made. If a fish were on dry land, supposing it's possible it could live, it would lead an unhappy life. It would be scarcely a fish at all. It's not until you put it into the stream that the fish becomes really a fish and enjoys its existence. It's just so with human beings. They do not truly live without God. Amen. In our remaining time, I want to consider some further reflection and and application on this overall uh, passage And the overall theme, you won't be surprised, is that Jesus is better. (laughs) So, first, only Jesus is the high priest now. Things are different now because Jesus has come. The author says the time of reformation has come, the time of fulfillment has begun with the coming of Christ and what he's done. Not only shouldn't someone go back to the old covenant, they can't go back. That was all temporary. It was pointing to this. And now Jesus is the only high priest. As Jeff said last week, it's not that we no longer need a high priest. We have the high priest in Jesus. The first covenant is no longer in operation. I wanna, this is a complex, I can't do it justice, but this is a, these are complex questions about biblical theology. But I want to spend a few minutes and consider the first covenant that came through Moses, because I think there are some caricatures that we can have that are not helpful about faithful believers in the old covenant. We can make assumptions that are not accurate. One caricature is that first covenant believers thought they were saved by works. That's not the case. All that are truly God's people throughout history have been saved by faith in the promises of God. When the law was given through Moses, it was a gracious thing. He had redeemed them out of slavery and graciously provided his law. Along with the law, this is super important, along with the law came the sacrificial system. It all went together as a package. Genuine Old Testament believers understood they were saved by God's grace. They were made right with God by faith in His promises. They understood they could be faithful to the system of God's law that He established for them because it included making sacrifices for their sins. They understood they needed God's forgiveness. Now, certainly some perverted this system of grace into a works-based system to try to justify themselves. We see this, don't we, in the time of Jesus and Paul. But people do the same thing today with Christianity, don't they? It's human nature to pervert grace into an effort-driven religion. But faithful Old Covenant believers understood this grace, and they relied on it. They gave thanks for the law. David delights in the law and the sacrificial system that came with it. So that's one false caricature that About Old Testament believers. Those who were truly a part of the covenant did understand God's grace and they fully depended on it. Another caricature, perhaps a bit more complex, is about the Old Covenant sacrifices themselves. If we only consider certain verses in Hebrews where he's got an agenda, a a true, fully biblical, God given agenda, but He's he's hand-picking thoughts to give to them for this situation. If we only consider certain verses here, we might almost think that the old covenant sacrifices never really achieved anything. I mean, people were never truly forgiven. But that's not the case. It's very clear from Leviticus that when the sacrifices were offered properly in faith, according to God's covenant instruction... People were forgiven. This was God's promise. Now, they had to keep sacrificing because they kept sinning, but forgiveness was truly given to them. Yet, Hebrews teaches us, doesn't it, that the death of these animals were not sufficient in and of themselves for that forgiveness. So how do we reconcile these things? There's an analogy that I have found super helpful to me that I want to spend some time on that I think will help us understand this tension better. At least that's my prayer. That analogy is purchasing something in a store using a credit card. When you purchase using a credit card, you truly receive the item, don't you? You can walk out of the store knowing that item is truly yours. However, you also know that that piece of plastic you used is not in and of itself sufficiently valuable to purchase that item. In fact, the plastic is worth very little. The card's only valuable because it's pointing to an account holder with real money that will pay it later. We know when we leave the store, while we do in fact possess the item we purchased, there's something that needs to happen later in the background, isn't there? There's an account holder with the money to reconcile things. Well, during the time... Of the Old Covenant, the Jews offered animal sacrifices in faith according to God's instruction. They truly received forgiveness from God. These sacrifices, I think, were like a credit card. The offering of animals really did provide forgiveness for the people, but not because of the animal's worth in and of themselves, but like a credit card because they pointed to something later. Someone who would reconcile things. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, Jesus paid off the credit card debt of the old covenant believers. That's why in Romans 3, Paul says, because of the cross, in that great passage, God is shown to be just. Because he had passed over sins previously committed. Old covenant believers who were forgiven. They were forgiven. But the credit card debt was piling up, wasn't it? The full extent of his justice had not yet been demonstrated in these credit card animal debts. But on the cross, it was all paid off. Everything was reconciled. And not only was that credit card paid off on the cross, that plastic was replaced. By something much better. Direct access to the account holder. And not only that, but access to him is now open to anyone. You see, in the old system, you had to first become a Jew to use the credit card. Now anyone, Jew or Gentile, can come directly to the account holder. The credit card of the old covenant was never meant to be permanent. Now its end has come and Jesus paid it all. And when he did that, he also made that plastic card invalid. That piece of plastic's not worth anything anymore. So cut it up. It's expired. It's been replaced with direct access to the account holder. This is a significant change and fulfillment in redemptive history. Now follow me here. As I continue the analogy, stick with me. This is some of what Paul is getting at in Galatians. That if you're going to rely on obeying the law for your right standing with God, you're going to have to be perfect. Why? Because the sacrificial system that went along with the law as a package has expired. That credit card is no longer valid. That entire system has been replaced by Jesus and the cross. You can't go back. You can't turn back the clock on salvation history. If you try to go back to the law, you're going into the store without a credit card. You're going to have to pay cash out of your own pocket. And no one, no one has that kind of money. Do you understand? No one can follow the law perfectly. That's why they needed the credit card of the sacrifices in the first place. If you could follow the law perfectly, as Paul says, you don't need a credit card. And Christ died for nothing. But the good news is that now you can go directly, anyone, to the account holder for the forgiveness of your sins and your right standing with God. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, you can be forgiven, made right with God by his good standing. His full payment on the cross. Do you see? This is the beauty and wonder of the new covenant, the heavenly tabernacle. That old system with its credit card was legitimate. Okay, it was legitimate for the faithful, but temporary. The time for plastic is over. It was all pointing to this. The account holder has come in the flesh. He's paid it all, and he's making everything new. The time of reformation is here. The new covenant has arrived. The time of the good things to come are upon us. Christ appeared as the high priest, and he's the only one now. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, hold fast to Jesus. Because there's no other name by which we must be saved. Secondly, only Jesus provides unrestricted access to God. John Phillips gives a great picture here with with a fictional account or story. It's somewhat lengthy, but it's so worth it for us Gentiles especially, who are far removed from this old system of the tabernacle, to help us appreciate what Jesus has done in the New Covenant. He writes this. Imagine a Moabite of old, gazing down upon the tents and the tabernacle of Israel from some lofty mountain height. Attracted by what he sees, he descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It's a high wall of dazzling linen which reaches over his head. He walks around it until he comes to the gate where he sees a man. May I go in there, he asks pointing through the gate where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you, demands the man suspiciously. Any Israelite would know he could go in there. Well, I'm a man from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry, but you cannot go in there. It's not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until his tenth generation. The Moabite looks sad. What would I have to do to go in there, he insists. You would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You would have to be born an Israelite. You would need to be born of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin or Dan, says the Moabite. I wish I had been born an Israelite, one of the tribes of Israel. And he looks more closely. He sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and cleansed himself at the brazen laver, and go on into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? Asks the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper. That's the tabernacle itself. Inside there's a room containing a lampstand, a table, altar of gold. The man you saw is a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat of the bread on the table, burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Ah, sighs the man from Moab. I wish I had been an Israelite. So I could do that. I would love to worship God in that holy place. Help trim the lamp. Offer Him some incense and eat at the table. Oh no! Says the man at the gate. Even I couldn't do that. To worship in the holy place, to worship in the holy place, one must not only be <laughs> one must not only be born an Israelite. One must be born in the tribe of Levi. And the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish, he said, I wish I had been born of, the, of Israel, the tribe of Levi, the family of Aaron. Gazing wistfully at the closed tabernacle door, he says, what else is in there? There's a veil, replies his informant. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told, which divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What's in the Holy of Holies, he asks. Or there's a sacred chest called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains holy memorials of our past. The top is made of gold. We call it the mercy seat because God sits there between the golden cherubim. You see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of longing, shadows. The face of the man from Moab. Oh, he says, if I were only a priest, I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in the beauty of his holiness. Oh, no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. You need to enter the, to enter the most holy place. You would have to be the high priest of Israel. Only he can go in there. Nobody else. Only he. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries. If I had only been born an Israelite, of the tribe, <clears throat> of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, if only I had been born the high priest. I would go in there into the Holy of Holies. I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again and once more shakes his head. Oh, no. He says, you couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year. And then only after the most elaborate Of preparations. And even then, only for a very little while. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there. Listen, Jesus Christ entered once for all into the holy places. The way is now open. That curtain has been torn. 1 Peter 3, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. In Christ we're no longer outsiders without any hope. We're insiders with eternal hope and eternal redemption. We have direct access to the very presence of this holy God through our great high priest any time we wish. As we saw in chapter 4, we can approach this throne of grace with boldness, free and unhindered access to the presence of God for all who are his. Have you been there? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you know that you can be? That's the only way to get there. By repentance and trust in his death and resurrection alone for the cleansing of your sin, which he freely offers by his grace to any who will come to him. Would you come today? This leads to our final point. Only Jesus purifies our conscience. The late great teacher R.C. Sproul over the years engaged with many discussions with unbelievers who challenged the Christian faith. Many of them had good questions and were seeking honest answers. But sooner or later, talking to those who were particularly hostile to Christianity, he would pause from answering their questions and would ask them a question. And the question was this. What do you do with your guilt? There's something visceral about that question that takes the conversation from abstract ideas and makes it very personal. He said rarely would people get angry when he asked that question. Sometimes people would claim they had no guilt or that guilt wasn't a real thing. But most of the time, people would take it seriously and explain how they deal with it. There's a lot of evidence from those conversations, he said, that every human being knows what guilt is and has had to deal with it with a guilty conscience one way or another. Kent Hughes tells the story of Albert Speer, the Adolf Hitler confidant, whose technological genius was credited with keeping Nazi factories operating during World War II. He was the only one of the 24 war criminals tried in Nuremberg who admitted his guilt, the only one. And he spent 20 years in prison. He was later interviewed about his last book on ABC's Good Morning America. And the interviewer referred to a passage in one of Spears' earlier writings. You have said that guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? The look on Spears' face was wrenching as he responded. I served a sentence of 20 years. And I could say that I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. This new book, he said, is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. The interviewer pressed the point. You really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? Speer shook his head. I don't think it will be possible. For 35 years, Speer had accepted complete responsibility, for his, crime. his writings were filled with contrition and warnings to others to avoid his moral sin. He desperately sought to purify his conscience, all to no avail. You know, some people look at the cross of Christ and they say, that's extreme. I mean, this blood-shedding God. What have we done? That's that bad to warrant that. They say, humanity isn't that bad. We're evolving. We're getting better. Certainly not guilty before God. But deep down, everybody knows this is a moral universe, and we cannot escape that. As one writer said, we know what we've done, and no flowering words about humanity's progress can erase that reality. And it is a bondage in your conscience from which only Jesus Christ can set you free. John Stott tells the story, I've, I've told this before, of a conversation that he had with the administrator of a mental hospital in London. And as this man spoke of all those in his hospital plagued with various psychological and mental anguishes, he said this to Stott, I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. Perhaps you're asking this fundamental life question this morning. How can I cleanse my conscience? How can I be forgiven? Or to ask it differently, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. Nothing. but the blood of Jesus. Or I'm so broken. What what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. Amen. That makes me white as snow. No other fount, I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Please, will you turn to him. Put all that sin, that burden, that guilt on him. He's ready and willing to take it all away. And to make you whole again by his death and resurrection. To make you a new person. A new creation. Born again. Only Jesus can purify your conscience from dead works, that you might serve the one true living God. That's the person you were made to be. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so humbled by this powerful truth of the new covenant. What you have done in Jesus Christ on that cross and after is mind-bottling. We're so grateful for its power and I pray that power be unleashed on those listening right now. That they might be born again. That they might turn from themselves, their efforts, their sins. Put all that on you and receive eternal life, eternal redemption through the one true high priest. We thank you for Jesus and his death, his blood shed for us. Amen.